a recap and a um, place here where, where I'm going. So last week I gave some reasons for thinking that if we follow what I call the rationalists, a current of thought and philosophy, which is also, I said, in many ways highly intuitive, so something that's part of our ordinary self-conception, uh, then we would think that the way to exercise self-control involves willpower. That is, rationalists think we always ought to act by looking at the reasons prevailing at a particular time. And uh, if those reasons constitute temptations, then we have to use willpower, which is like a mental muscle, to overcome the temptation. And against that, I suggested, all very abstractly, without getting into the details, that we should instead use self-management to exercise self-control. We should objectify ourselves, we should manage ourselves. When we expect to face temptations, and we don't want to give in to them, um, and think it's unlikely we'll have a genuine reason to change our minds, we should tie ourselves to the mask. Remember Ulysses ties himself to the, the mask, the mask so that he will resist the temptation of the sirens. He can listen to the siren song without following uh, their lure to his death. So we should tie ourselves to whatever the, the mask might be to avoid reconsidering the question about how uh, we ought to act. If we don't, we set ourselves up for these cycles of resolution. I resolve not to have that chocolate cake. Reconsideration. Well, you know, I've had a bad day today. It's, um, I'm particularly stressed. This isn't a good day to start my diet. Regret. Why the hell did I eat that chocolate cake? All of which is very, very familiar. Now, in this lecture, I'm going to go from one extreme to the other, from this uh, very abstract survey of the territory to a much more detailed um, dig into some, only some, of the science of self-control, in particular the psychology of control. I've talked a tiny bit about the neuroscience, but only in passing. I do this for two reasons. One is because the most influential account of self-control is an account of willpower, a mental muscle. So the rationalists can say, well, you say that we follow our advice and we're going to have these cycles of resolution, reconsideration, regret. But look at the science. The science tells us there's this thing called willpower, which means we can instead have Resolution, reconsideration, and I don't know what the, the, the R would be. Res uh, re remaining resolved, maybe. Use our willpower to remain 
firm. That's what um, the science of self-control, at least with most influential high-profile uh, branch, is a science of willpower. So I want to look at the prospects uh, for that account. And what I'm going to suggest is on the contrary, that it suggests that willpower, while genuine, a real phenomenon, and no doubt something which does enable us to reconsider without uh, giving into temptation on some occasions. Nevertheless, it's a phenomenon that's highly sensitive to the environment. So that if we want to be able to exercise willpower, we're still in the business of managing ourselves, of managing our environment to ensure that we have sufficient willpower. So I'm going to suggest, and this is when I, I, I get more practical, the mid-level between these, these two extremes, I'm going to suggest that it's actually not all or nothing. It's not tying yourself to the mouse or exercising willpower. There's good reason to think we need both. But um, willpower probably plays a relatively marginal, necessary, but relatively small role in self-control. Okay, so that's the, the uh, recap and the outline. So, the most prominent account of self-control in the psychological literature, by far, is the ego depletion account. It also has the problem of being by one of the worst named accounts in the psychological literature. The ego part of ego depletion refers to more or less nothing at all. Uh, the depletion account, the depletion word, uh, um, thankfully, does do a lot of work. The ego depletion account is an account of self-control as a depletable resource. The idea is the more self-control you exercise, the less you have. Sometimes this is called by its proponents, particularly Roy Baumeister. Um, a lot of this work comes out of Florida State University from Roy Baumeister's lab, a Baumeister, Tice lab actually. Um, although there's been much replicated all around the world. Uh, and Baumeister calls it the gas tank model. He's an American, gas the American for petrol. So the idea is just as how far you can drive a car depends very significantly on the amount of gas in the tank. If you've driven a lot and you've got less left, you just can't go as far. So self-control is depletable, you've used up a lot, uh, you don't have uh, much available. And you need to replenish it. You replenish it in various ways, rest being the most prominent, but not the only one, as we'll see. So here's some of the evidence for this. <coughs> Typically, the social psychologists they use between subjects, um, designs for experiments, which means that uh, you have a control group and an experimental group. Um, and here's how you, you show the depletion. You give members of each group a task to do, and the task 
is matched in previous piloting for aversiveness and usually for duration. But only one of the tasks is a self-control task, um, or more generally, a cognitive regulation task. That is a task that calls upon the resources that self-control calls upon. So for example, a self-control task could be a um, what we would ordinarily regard as a self-control task. I think this was the very first experiment that uh, Bellmaster's lab did on this um, paradigm. They brought the subjects into the lab and they told them they were to take, uh, they were to participate in a taste perception task. This is a cover story, it's not in fact what they were doing. They said there was two groups, that was true, uh, and each group got to taste something different. One group had to taste cookies, which is American for biscuits which were freshly baked right there in the lab and they were arrayed before the subjects. There are the cookies that are going to get tasted. Smell filled the lab. You, on the other hand, are the radishes group. You are going to taste radishes. Then the experimenters withdrew and covertly observed the subjects. Subjects dutifully tasted radishes. They, some of them handled the cookies, sniffed the cookies, but nobody actually ate any cookie. So that's a self-control task. Um, other self-control tasks, there's a huge variety. So I said there could be cognitive regulation tasks like the Stroop task. Stroop task asks you to um, simply name the colour of the ink in which a word is written. Sounds easy. It's not so easy when the word is a colour word and it doesn't match the colouring of the ink. So when green is written in red, your task is to say red. But to do that, you've got to inhibit the impulse to read the word, which is overlearned. It's automatic for, um, for uh, people like us who are highly literate. Anyone above teenagers, uh, uh, reading is automatic. And people are slower and make more mistakes at the strip task. When it's a discordant word than a concordant word, concordant would be blue written in blue. That's easy. Um, yellow written in purple is hard. Uh, and we know it's a cognitive regulation task. It requires effort to override the effort form, is to override the impulse. Um, other tasks, the cold presser task, simply keep your um, arm immersed in icy water as long as you can. Or watch a funny video without smiling. There's a huge array of them. Meanwhile, the other group, the non-experimental group, control group, I don't want to use the word control, because self-control and control, uh, they've been given another task. And it doesn't require much self-control. Typical. Um, one is doing a little bit of arithmetic on paper. Um, then the two groups are given a common self-control task. Any of the ones I mentioned could do um, for nice de uh, demonstrations. Ones where you just measure persistence. How long can you squeeze a hand grip? That turns out to be a better 
tests of self-control than it does of muscular strength? Or um, how long will you persist at trying to solve difficult and, in fact, some of them insoluble anagrams? And what you find is that people who've been given a previous self-control task are very much worse at a subsequent self-control task than other people who do not have to perform a self-control task before. Even if they had to work in some way. Um, so it looks like self-control is depletable or more particularly as Garmeister understands it, that it depends upon something that's depletable. This is, as I said, often called the gas, gas tank model of self-control. A better metaphor would be a muscle model. And indeed, some people have started to use this metaphor. The reason being that uh, self-control seems to resemble muscular strength more than it resembles the reserves in a tank of petrol. Um, petrol tanks don't get better, more efficient uh, at using uh, petrol if you drive a lot. Um, muscles do get more efficient and if I practice my muscular strength every day, I, uh, although that depletes my muscular strength in the short term, I get better at it over the longer term. Self-control seems to be like that, uh, depletable over the short term, but practice actually builds it up. So, um, subjects who've been given self-control tasks to practice every day get better at self-control more generally, not just at that task. It seems to generalize. What's the depletable resource? Well, Baumeister has argued it's glucose. And we know that brain metabolism does depend on glucose. So it's not wildly implausible. As I'll show um, in a little bit, there's in fact a huge range of evidence you can cite uh, which does suggest that glucose is playing a role. But here's the, the experimental reason why Baumeister thinks it's glucose. He and uh, a collaborator called um, Galo performed the, the following experiment. They depleted subjects, and then, before getting them to perform a subsequent self-control task, they gave them a drink, a milkshake. Half the subjects got milkshake, uh, a milkshake sweetened with an artificial sweetener, and half of them got a milkshake sweetened with glucose. Surprisingly, I think, that I'm just going to accept this because it's been much replicated. Subjects are a chance in identifying which they have. You can't tell if, if it's the sugar or the, or the uh, artificial sweetener. But only subjects that got the milkshake uh, sweetened with glucose improved in self-control. In fact, glucose abolished the depletion, uh, whereas the artificial sweetener had no effect whatsoever. So that's the most prominent account of self-control available. It completely dominates the psychological literature. 
I want to sketch now a second account, which is much less um, influential. It's an opportunity costs model of self-control. And it's been advanced by Robert Kurzban in an article in uh, Brain Behavioral Science um, last year, I think. Uh, Kurzban is an evolutionary psychologist. This is an evolutionary account of self-control. And as the name suggests, it's an opportunity costs model. So the opportunity costs of something is uh, the value of the next best alternative. So the opportunity costs of coming to this lecture is whatever else you could have been doing. It's a lovely day outside. The opportunity costs are higher if you like walking in parks uh, than if you don't. The opportunity costs for you are higher. Uh, on Kurzban's account, self-control failures occur when an adaptive mechanism that has the job of monitoring the opportunity costs of whatever task and subjects engaged in signal that the next best task is better than the current one. And it does that by increasing the sense of effort that the person experiences. So when the current value of the task falls below the value of the next best available alternative, the subject is prompted to switch by psychological mechanisms which uh, generate a sense of effort. So on my uh, preferred account, um, and uh, I, this is a feature which I hope is integratable with the opportunity costs account. On my preferred account, the proximate mechanism of the loss of self-control is judgment shift. Not a sense of effort, but people, it's changing their judgments about what they, have, they uh, ought best to do. On Kurzban's account, the proximate mechanism is this experience of effort. Although he doesn't say this, I take it that Kurzban's account only makes sense if you place it in a context in which there is a mismatch between the value in, on which people place on tasks and the value that mechanisms place on tasks. So I'm assuming a common picture in cognitive science according to which there really are agents, people like you and me, who have a personal level viewpoint, but these agents are constituted by mechanisms which are sub-personal, which don't have a viewpoint because they're not complex enough really to have a, a viewpoint, but nevertheless uh, can best be understood as kind of intentional little mechanisms, kind of have quasi-viewpoints. And there's got to be a dissociation between the value that the mechanisms place on task and the value that the person places on the task. Otherwise, it would be hard to conceptualise what's going on 
as a loss of self-control. There's got to be a mismatch between what the person judges they ought to do and what the mechanism prompts them to do. Now that, uh, I, I take it that Kurzban would be very sympathetic to that kind of uh, addendum. Uh, he's, after all, an evolutionary psychologist, and it's a commonplace that uh, um, the brain co contains, or the mind contains, adaptive mechanisms which are sensitive to goods which, uh, because they're, it's adaptive to be sensitive to those goods. That is, in the environment in which we evolved, it was a good thing to be sensitive to those goods. But we don't necessarily value those goods very much um, ourselves. Our ends are not necessarily the ends of evolution. The most obvious one is uh, high-calorie foods uh, uh, cause an automatic orienting of attention. They're highly motivating for us, uh, but in uh, places of abundance, we don't value that fact. Now, the ego depletion account is an essentially diachronic account. It explains a loss of uh, self-control in terms of depletion. Kurzban's account is a synchronic account. It turns in particular on the fact that there are resources which can't be allocated to many tasks or more than one task very efficiently at a time, like attention. Um, so multitasking is hard leads to uh, worse performance. You'll sometimes read that women are better um, at, at multitasking than men. To a first approximation, nobody is any good at multitasking. That's what the psychological data shows. He does need an explanation for this diachronic fact. There's all this data which we need to explain. People get worse at self-control tasks when they're successive. Kurzban suggests that as we explore tasks, we begin to better understand their value, and that value drops for us. So, a typical psych task is pretty boring after a while, but it may not appear quite so rewarding <clears throat> at first. Probably it's idea. actually uh, <coughs> just uh, the doctor said rest your voice. <laughs> so what we're trying to explain is why people get worse at successive self-control tasks. And Kirkman doesn't have a very good explanation for it. Still, theory choice is a comparative matter. And Kurzban does take himself to have a knockout blow against the depletion accounts. And it's this. According to him, and so far as I can see, he's right, there's no plausible candidate for the resource that's depleted in ego depletion. So in effect, the depletion account doesn't have an explanation of the sequential worsening effect either. There are these cough lozenges that they have. Um, 
So as I said, Baumeister thinks it's glucose. And there is a convergent evidence that suggests that glucose is playing a role. Here's some of it. Uh, sufferers from hypoglycemia have more trouble concentrating and are overrepresented in the criminal population. Juvenile offenders have lower blood sugar levels on average than um, age-matched criminals. Um, and blood sugar levels in juvenile offenders is actually one of the best predictors of recidivism rates. Um, diabetes, which is pathological glucose intolerance, is associated with higher levels of impulsiveness and alcoholism. Having breakfast is correlated with better uh, attention spans in children, but a mid-morning snack abolishes the difference between breakfasters and non-breakfasters. That looks like it's causal. <coughs> There's a lovely um, little study on parole decisions of, of Israeli judges looking at the likelihood of giving parole as a function of time since last meal. At its highest point, just after a meal, Israeli judges are giving 65% of uh, people who appear in front of them parole. This lowest point, just prior to a meal, has dropped to zero. And there's a nice um, curve. And the glucose manipulation even works in dogs. So all of that suggests glucose is playing a role. But if it is, it's not the role that Bauermeister thinks. There's lots of reasons to be sceptical. So here are some of the less important ones. Glucose plays a role in cerebral metabolism, but the differences between cognitively taxing tasks and those that are not taxing are really minuscule. They don't affect blood sugar levels at all. Worse, exercise is orders of magnitudes more depleting of glucose than cognitive tasks, but exercise actually increases self-control. But here's the main reason why it can't be glucose. So there's been three replications now of the part of the baumeister gala finding. The replications found that glucose abolished ego depletion and artificial sweetener had no effect whatsoever, but in none of the replications did the subjects swallow the glucose. They simply swished it around their mouth and spat it out, as did, of course, the controls who swished a, a spartan-flavoured milkshake around their mouth and, and, and spat that out. It is possible they're absorbing a tiny bit of glucose um, through the, the membranes of the mouth, but in fact, the effect is instantaneous, which rules out um, glucose metabolism as driving it. It's not caused by glucose, at least not in the way Baumeister suggests. It's not fueling self-control. Instead, we need another kind of explanation. 
kind of explanation psychologists and cognitive scientists call a computational explanation, one that turns on the function it's playing uh, in, at a psychological level rather than the function it's playing um, as a brute causal factor like petrol. There are various hypotheses in the literature. Uh, Hager, who's one of the people whose group replicated the finding but without swallowing uh, the glucose, and Kurzban himself have each suggested independently that glucose affects the reward value of the subsequent task. Their idea is this. Glucose, sensing glucose, not, not swallowing it, simply sensing it, causes activity in ventral striatum. Uh, that's known. Ventral striatum is part of the mesolytic dopamine system, or at least it contains nucleus accumbens, which is part of the um, mesolytic dopamine system, and plays some role in reward value. Exactly what that role is, slightly controversial. I think it's reward prediction, but uh, I have a little bit to say about that in a, in a few minutes. But in any case, there's some kind of uh, signal of reward, and that, according to Hagar and Kurzban, then gets attached to the subsequent task, which is experienced as more rewarding, and therefore, uh, for Kurzban, that lowers the opportunity costs, uh, you know, because opportunity costs are a relative measure, the opportunity costs are the next best task for, for, for Hagar, for Hagar, um, it increases motivation. Um, Molden et al., who, uh, another group who replicated the glucose finding but without the swallowing, uh, have an alternative hypothesis which also turns on the role of um, ventral striatum. They um, suggest that the sensing of an energy source might signal the possibility of future reward, and that could increase motivation. Okay, so first I'm going to um, consider the Hagar-Kurzban explanation, according to which glucose causes VS activation, that causes, that's a, a signal of reward, and that signal gets applied to the subsequent task. I find that a highly implausible explanation. Here's why. Here's what's happening. This is in fact artificially sweetened, but imagine it's a, it's glucose. I take a, a sip of that, think, gee, that's nice, and now I think this lecture is going better. <laughs> that's a mistake. It's not going better because the drink was sweet. Similarly, the idea that a subsequent task is valued more due to a prior ingestion or tasting of glucose is a misfiring. It requires an, a misapplication of value from one source to, the, to another. Misattribution, not misapplication. 
Now, perhaps Hagar and Kurzban think that something like that could be going on. They don't say anything like this, but perhaps they think something like that could be going on because the Mesolithic dopamine system is famous for featuring in a, mis a misapplication of value, and that's with regard to addiction. So many people think that addictive drugs uh, are highly motivating, in part because they, in that overused metaphor, hijack the mesolimbic dopamine system. Here's how they do it. Dopamine um, firing rates in, in um, phasic dopamine are a, some kind of reward signal. System learns the value of something. So when you first do something that's rewarding, you get this spike in dopamine. After a while, you don't get this, this spike in dopamine when you do that, but rather when you anticipate it, when you get cues that predict it. It happens to people who are familiar with drugs. Um, when they start off liking drugs, they experience cues that predict drugs, they anticipate drugs, they get the spike in dopamine. They oughtn't to get a second spike in dopamine when they consume the drug, but they do, because the drug directly drives up the dopamine signal. So you get pathological overlearning of the value of the drug. So it's widely accepted, not university, but widely accepted, that some kind of misfiring of the mesolimbic dopamine system is part of this story in addiction. But the idea that it's part of the story here is wildly implausible, even though I'm actually very sympathetic to the um, misfiring account of addiction. The reason is, it's easy to understand why the system can be hijacked by addictive drugs. There's no selection pressure to filter out their effects, because addictive drugs are very rare. It's controversial whether they're very rare or entirely absent from the environment uh, uh, in which we evolved, and indeed in which our very distant ancestors evolved. So they were just too rare for the fact that they caused this misfiring to be something that concerned evolution. Glucose isn't like that. Glucose is ubiquitous. It's a, a fuel that all mammals use. Any a hypothesis according to which glucose hijacks the mesolimbic dopamine system and leads to uh, us misattributing value is postulating a pervasively maladaptive mechanism which should have been weeded out millions of years ago. Here's the second problem with the account. It has no explanation for the following finding. It turns out that the glucose manipulation only works in depleted individuals. If you're not depleted, the giving you extra sugar doesn't improve your self-control. So don't take this as an excuse to, you know, a general excuse to go out and buy chocolate. Only if you're previously depleted will the chocolate help. Now, why doesn't 
glucose uh, improved performance in a non-depleted. Hacker says, well, motivation might be subject to a ceiling effect. I, I guess motivation might be subject to a ceiling effect. There might be a maximum amount of motivation. But the idea that the um, cynical subject in a psychology experiment is optimally motivated is wildly implausible. These are either uh, undergraduates who are doing it for course completion, for course credit, and they're not wildly motivated to be there, I guarantee you. Or they are people who have come in for a small payment, either students or, or, or even the general population who have come in from a small, uh, for a small payment. They vary in motivation. All these people vary in motivation. Some of them are quite motivated. Some of them are highly unmotivated. There's no reason to think that any of them are optimally motivated, let alone that the typical subject is uh, optimally motivated. So now let me turn to uh, modern ethyl. They suggest that glucose serves as a signal of the availability of future reward. And that this in turn motivates our effort. This is well against objection one. It doesn't uh, postulate a maladaptive mechanism. There's no hijacking, there's no misattribution of value going on here. It all might be veridical. When I take a sip, um, and I think, well, you know, glucose is pretty plentiful around here, it turns out. And, and that might be accurate. It might be highly correlated with glucose actually being uh, plentiful. But it seems vulnerable to the second objection. Again, it's a motivation hypothesis. And as I've said, it's wildly impossible that subjects are optimally motivated. So it seems... Uh, unable to explain why sensing glucose isn't a signal that improves performance in the non-depleted. Still, I think it's a fruitful suggestion, a signal suggestion, and I want to build on it. Or it places in the broader perspective, uh, which some of which I sketched last time. So if you remember, I talked about discount functions. Um, Self-control mechanisms are such that uh, we can map them in a way that uh, graphs and individuals discount functions. How, how easily they're able to delay gratification in order to pursue a reward which they genuinely value more over one that closer in time. So this is a temporal discount function. And I think looking at those discount functions is a helpful way to understand the mechanisms involved in self-control. You should expect these mechanisms to be sensitive to environmental features. Indeed, this Indirect evidence, plentiful indirect evidence that they are. So we know 
that self-control is predicted very well by socioeconomic status, class. And since there's, there's no genetic differences to speak of between high SES and low SES subjects, we can be sure that's a difference in environment. Plausibly, the story goes something like this. Low SES subjects, children, develop in environments in which self-control is not rewarded because they're not stable and secure enough. If you delay gratification, you pass up the opportunity to get a reward right now, you may simply miss out altogether. High SES subjects are raised in environments in which gratification, delaying gratification, is rewarded. If you don't have your cookie now, you really will get two with dinner or after dinner. You really will get a, a nice birthday present if you behave well now. And that has effects. We, we know uh, uh, how it's mediated. We know what neural uh, mechanisms it has effects on. It has uh, effects on prefrontal cortex and uh, thereby changes people's discount functions, makes them uh, better or worse at temporal discounting. Now, we know that this has effects across the life, lifespan. I'm going to be talking about effects, effects across the lifespan uh, much more in the last lecture, assuming I'm able to speak. Uh, but we wouldn't expect these effects to be set in stone. That is to say, what this probably happens is people's uh, discount function gets set, but it's not set as a rigid level. You get variation around that level in response to short-term environmental fluctuations. After all, short-term environmental fluctuations uh, have been a feature of human life as long as they've been humans, and indeed of animal life. Um, for example, seasonal variation. Uh, that's variation in environments that's relevant to the resources that's available and relevant to how much delay of gratification pays off. Remember, the squirrel uh, scores nuts during summer and then he eats them during winter. We should expect our ancestors to have some kinds of strategies like that to deal with uh, predictable feast-famine cycles or just less dramatic um, environmental seasonal uh, variation. My suggestion is that glucose is a cue to which these mechanisms are sensitive. Res glucose is a signal of resource availability, of environmental richness. And that's a signal that if you like, I can, um, I can store nuts, I don't need to, to start eating them. We put it in the uh, language familiar in, in the evolutionary biology literature. It's a signal that I'm okay to explore and not exploit. 
it's not urgent that I start getting resources, whatever resources are available. I can take my time. I can see if maybe there are better opportunities around the corner. I can explore the value of the current task. This hypothesis isn't vulnerable to the first objection because it doesn't postulate a maladaptive mechanism, claiming that these kinds of signals, at least in the right context. So, for example, I would guess that glucose availability is not sufficient by itself, but given the right background conditions. For example, if a person's highly stressed, that probably uh, would indicate that the glucose um, signal is not a sign of resource availability in the right conditions, environmental stability. So under the right conditions, the signal may be very well correlated in the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, and today, I'm not sure about that, but perhaps today too, with um, what it signals. The signal of, of resource availability may be highly correlated with genuine resource availability. So there's no worries about objection one. There is a worry about objection two. Why no improvement in the non-depleted? Here's my suggestion. Kurzban's model supposes there are mechanisms which have the job of scouring for the value of the best available alternatives. I'm suggesting that depletion, i.e. investing resources in a task, and there may well be some chronic resources, as Kurzban suggests, things like attention, investing resources in a task triggers those mechanisms. When, you, when you're just lounging about, uh, watching TV, or doing something that's not demanding, those mechanisms are downregulated. They're upregulated when resources are committed in such a way uh, that um, dividing them, turning them to something else, becomes a cost. After all, when I'm doing something that's not demanding, I can orient myself to other act activities and opportunities very easily. When I'm engaged in something, when my attention is focused, that's when I need some personal mechanisms to take on some of the load for me. So my suggestion is a signal of environmental richness and stability downregulates those mechanisms which have been upregulated by engagement in this demanding task. So my committing resources to the task upregulates these mechanisms, then a signal that everything's fine, the environment's stable, I'm, I'm, uh, there's no urgency that I turn my mind to anything else, all of that dampens down these mechanisms. It's possible, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the signal actually does improve performance in some individuals. I'd like to see it tested in people whose uh, baseline isn't very good. Say, low SES subjects who have highly bowed and very steep discount curves. Um, it may well be that their self-control mechanisms are sensitive to, be, to signals of environmental stability because they're chronically set to uh, 
um, expect an environment that's insecure. That hasn't been tested, but it's interesting um, to test. It would be surprising if only glucose were the signal. If my hypothesis is right, then one ought to expect other signals uh, equally to be signals um, to which these mechanisms are sensitive. It would be very surprising and a big blow to me if it turns out that glucose is the only uh, signal. There'd be other reliable indicators of resource richness and stability. And one would expect this to be empirically uh, practical. Notice that this hypothesis uh, diverges from Kurzban's in ways that it's testable. So Kurzban says, this is his opportunity cost model, if the opportunity costs of the current class are higher, people will experience it as more effortful and therefore they will persist at short time. My model says the right opportunity costs might actually lead to better performance. So I mean, this is what he says. He hasn't tested it, uh, amazingly. Um, he's got a lab, I don't. Uh, he says, suppose people really like playing Angry Birds on their, their iPhone. You put their iPhone uh, somewhere they can just see it peripherally. We agreed one point to be right in their image where, where, where they can see it. We don't want to be attention grabbing. We don't want it to, uh, to uh, fire up those endogenous uh, attention mechanisms. We, we want to tap into the self control mechanisms more specifically. He predicts that people will persist a shorter time at the task because now the opportunity cost is playing Angry Birds as opposed to when the mobile phone's in another room. I predict that under the right conditions, knowing I can play Angry Birds might actually improve performance if they know they're going to have plenty of time when they can get their fill playing Angry Birds and there's going to be no other competing distractions and nothing uh, else they have to be doing. Uh, so this is a tractable hypothesis. So this is essentially a modification of the opportunity costs account, I think. It's certainly closer to that than the depletion account. Uh, the depletion account, um, insofar as it requires that there be something that's depletable, is something that I think we should uh, reject. Rather, it's an account according to which self-control is lost when mechanisms which have the job of looking for more urgent and better paying off alternatives as measured by them, their measures may not be our measures, evolution's goals are not our goals, when those mechanisms are upregulated. And importantly, it's an account in which the nature of the environment plays a major role in self-control. So, people may, well, do differ in this endogenous ability to exercise self-control effortfully 
Uh, and I'll talk about that a lot more on Friday. Was it Thursday? Friday, I think. Uh, that's the difference between high and low SES subjects. That difference, though, is itself explained by the environment. More importantly, for my purposes, even if we want to make a lot of that difference, and I'm going to argue on Friday we shouldn't be making a lot about that difference, that even for high SES subjects, uh, even for them who do have better self-control, their success at pursuing goods is not explained by ethical self-control, uh, for the most part. But whether that's true or not, we need to be ex uh, accepting that the self-control ability is itself sensitive to the costs and opportunities available in the environment. And these are things that people can be in the business of manipulating for themselves. You can decide uh, whether there are signals of environmental stability or not. You can decide about the conditions under which you, in, you uh, undertake um, self-control tasks, what the available alternatives are and how tempting they are for you. Notice though, this is even more objectifying in one way than I was suggesting uh, last week. So here's what I've said, and this is common sense. If you want to concentrate at reading a book which you find demanding, you really have to get through, don't have, uh, if you're tempted by Angry Birds, don't have it uh, you know, on your, your iPad and in the corner over there. That's common sense. It's only slightly objectifying. Here's what's much more objectifying. The mechanisms which underlie failures of self-control may be sensitive to things that you don't find rewarding at all which you need to find out about through pers third-person observation, perhaps best by reading the, the, uh, the empirical literature, to avoid those temptations, temptations which you don't value, but the mechanisms um, are nevertheless really sensitive to. Conversely, uh, signals which downregulate them may not be signals which to you are suggestive of comfort. So this is an even more objectifying perspective in one way than um, the one I was suggesting last week. Okay, so in the next lecture, I'm going to turn to the mid-range between the, the abstract view of the first lecture and uh, getting into a little bit of the details of the second lecture, turning towards the more the personal level, although still uh, mining the psychological data, I'm going to be looking at how people who are successful, the most successful, at exercising self-control, actually do it. And that'll have to wait for, for Friday. Thank you.